Hello, and welcome to Steady State Podcast, your rowing fix, where the water's always flat, the catches are clean, and you can always hear the coxswain. We're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates the expansive array of rowers, coaches, and coxswains in a podcast designed to savor real-life experience from launch to coxie at every level. We're Tara Morgan and Rachel Friedman, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode with Rachel Lemieux. As a 5'1", 108-pound college freshman, Rachel was literally picked up and placed in a coxswain seat. Today, she's the head coach of Martha's Moms, a U.S. rowing referee and a FISA umpire. She's also the chair of the U.S. Rowing Safety Committee. We talked about the nuance of boat feel, why heel ties are actually important, nearly losing your lunch after a race, and the rich history of Washington, rowing, and more. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, would you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. We are really interested in the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. As the Director of Sports Nutrition for U.S. Rowing and her, in her own private practice, Liz Fusco helps Olympians, Paralympians, high-performance athletes, recreationally active clients, and young athletes establish healthy relationships with food and improve in energy levels. Liz is also a sports dietitian for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and the Oklahoma City High Performance Center. She makes evidence-based nutrition strategies approachable, and we're looking forward to asking her some burning questions about the nutrition choices we all make. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, and I am so excited to see what you've cooked up for me. Ah, good dietitian pun there. Thank you. Good one. Good one. It was good. It wasn't excellent, but we'll oh, take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So back in August, Tara and I, uh, we were at U.S. Rowing Masters Nationals, and we got to talking a lot, a lot about lightweight rowing, coxing, and weigh-ins for both of those groups of people. Uh, I told Tara about my first experience having a weigh-in uh, as a coxswain and kind of how awkward it was for me. Uh, and also at, at the master's level, how important I think it is for the entire crew to be kind of conscious of weight in the boat. And that it's not, it shouldn't all be on the coxswain to be as teeny tiny as possible. Right. Um, and, and we were at master's nationals together this last August in Oak Ridge in Tennessee. And we put together this composition mixed eight of our listeners. And it was, we, we interviewed, or we put the word out to our listeners and said, hey, who wants to play with us? And Michael Shea of uh, Capital Rowing Club said, you have to talk to Liz. So that's how we found you. Amazing. So that's a lot to unpack as a first question. Let's see. Starting with lightweights and weigh-ins and coxswains and things like that. I think that step one is make sure that you are naturally of the body type to be able to sustain that type of a cyclical nature of weighing in. So if you are far above and beyond what should be considered a lightweight or what you can, where you can comfortably sit at that body weight, you should be open weight. That's, it's just that simple. There's also a lot more 
um, I've, I've noticed that the, the relationship of like a Cox's weight and, and even at the, at higher levels, how much a coach honestly cares if a Cox is exactly at weight or not, it is, has lessened a lot over the years. And I think maybe part of that is the international changes in the Cox's minimum weights, at least for the women's eight. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of awareness around this right now. We've also recently put out some guidelines at us rowing, which, you know, there's a lot of changes happening right now, of course, but Mm -hmm. we will revisit the, the junior lightweight rowing guidelines. And our intention with that was, um, if you are naturally of a small frame, then you are a lightweight. Um, and if you are above the weight of a lightweight, then you're not. And it should be that simple if you're a minor. Um, and I think that we lose sight of that a little bit when we get into more elite levels of it, but, um, there are ways that you can modify your body weight in the long term safely and also acutely in a safe way. And I think that for lightweights, understanding the, the time frame and the combination of chronic and acute weight making strategies is part of what makes a great lightweight. It's something that you absolutely need to have. It's an essential part of that toolkit. So in my, that's a lot of the work that a lot of the really strongly focused work that I do is, is in that in, in helping athletes understand what those fluctuations in weight are and what they mean and how we can use them to our advantage potentially. Um, but that's, I would love to come back and just talk straight lightweight rowing. Cause you know, we could definitely go down that. And I would say in terms of like the, um, other, the weight of the other people in the boat, and we know that um, power to weight is a consideration and a factor. And I know that in a lot of collegiate rowing programs and some other elite programs, they will do a weight adjusted ERG score. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. caution though, I would caution anyone to make any type of uh, judgments, even if it's just internally, definitely not externally about someone's health. Um, about their weight in relation to their performance as an athlete, because we honestly don't know that. Uh, We know that fat can be healthy. And we know that the connotation of even, I bet you the fact that I just said the word fat, some people's blood pressure just went up a little bit, right? And I think we need to just visit that entire conversation uh, in more of a sociological perspective, um, especially when we're talking about masters athletes, like we're out there to have fun. Yeah. There's so many things to cover there. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, just even seeing the number, like the number on this scale doesn't always tell you something, you know, you know, the, the weight that I am today is exactly what I was when I within a couple of pounds of what I was 20 years ago when I started rowing, but I can tell you the body is totally different. Yeah. And you also have kind of an amazing thing that happens when you're a tall girl like me, I'm 5'10", and you walk into a regatta, you finally see people who just look like average. And you are, as a tall girl, you also start to see a lot of tall women, right? I mean, that's kind of an old concept that's going out of style now in the master's realm. I teach adult learn to row. So I have people who Mm -hmm. are, you know, 6'6", and people who are 5 feet. And I have, you know, all, we have to make it work. And that's kind of the beauty of rowing. Um, but we, Rachel and I both know people and ourselves included who have gone down a lot of different paths with food and a lot of different Mm. paths with performance and food. And one of the Mm. favorite lessons I learned a long time ago was considering food as fuel. And when I talked to Amanda Krause at us rowing at masters national, she, she gave me a a heads up that the lightweight juniors issue was coming 
kind of to a head at, New, at U.S. rowing in that rowing is one of the only, as she called it, finish line sports that has a weight requirement. You know, we have wrestling, mm. we have powerlifting, we have all these other kinds of sports that do have uh, weight uh, for various reasons, you know, boxing and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But you would never see a lightweight track event. Like that's mm. crazy to think about a light, you know, a lightweight, you know, mile yeah. event, like all oh, the lightweights, you know, it's like, no, that doesn't. Yeah. Work. Well, and it's hard because the reason why lightweight rowing came to exist in the first place was because rowing is a highly exclusive sport. And it's an, it was an attempt to include more countries that have people that are naturally smaller and to include people that are naturally smaller in the elite rowing world. So the intention wasn't misaligned. Um, it's what happened after the fact and how it was manipulated and how it continues to be manipulated by coaches. That's the key problem. And I would say that some of our best lightweights are absolutely could compete with some of the open weight athletes. Um, whether that translates to the international stage and in that, uh, you know, a five, five or a five, seven athlete can like can hold their place. I would love to see it. I'd love to see it. Um, but I, I generally still support including lightweight rowing. I, I don't think that there should be any type of weighing in or, or any type of weight making considerations for juniors, but short kids should be able to row too. And maybe, you know, and in high, in the collegiate setting, that's when I think the real gap and the real challenge there is actually in, in providers. There's not enough eyes on the athletes to make sure that they have the knowledge to do things appropriately. And often, you know, rowing is also a pretty centric sport in that um, not all, but some coaches like to, and this is a common in so many other sports. Oh my gosh. But the coach kind of likes to be the one doing it all, giving all the information. And sometimes they're not pulling in all the resources and they're not identifying athletes that are at risk. Um, so it's really just, we need to fortify the whole system. If the answer is to eliminate the whole category, that sounds simple, but I think that we're making an already exclusive sport more exclusive by doing that. That's interesting. We were talking recently with uh, Jim Rogers at uh, Oak Ridge Rowing Association, and he was telling us that the way that they're going to start approaching it is strictly based on age. So lightweight or Mm -hmm. not, you know, 14 and under, whatever their breakdown is. I thought that that's an interesting, uh, interesting approach. Right. Because when you see those little skinny little 13 year olds who start rowing and then you see them when they're 18 and they're naturally, they're naturally growing, you know, they, Mm -hmm. they they look like, they look like they're 30 years old by the time they're done, you know, and it's it's such a growth process. I'm always curious why lightweight made its way to masters. And Mm. I don't know, there's so many things about the Olympic realm and the elite realm that somehow have made it into masters. Like we're supposed to mirror that process Mm. and we're supposed to be like that process. And I just don't think that it's, it's as reasonable, but Mm. yeah, it's, it's weird. Like I had a teammate on my women's rowing team who found out the day before that she was rowing in a lightweight double or something. And she actually had to lose three pounds like overnight or something or five Mm. pounds overnight. And she did. And it was crazy. just crazy. Yeah. Like what kind of, sh- yeah. like you were talking about timing. Like if you really needed to be at a certain weight, a logical amount of time, 
there is science to say like, okay, you could do that over three months or you could do it, but not like in two days. And believe it or not, there actually is science for acute weight making of three pounds of loss overnight or within 24 hours, I would say. And that's what I mean when I say like, it's, it's a re it's a lack of resources. It's a lack of knowledge that is like presenting this kind of area of rowing as a danger. Like it's, it's the fact that there's just not enough information out there and that there are people trying to squeeze down into a class that they just don't belong in. The same thing happens in wrestling. And then if you look at other finish line sports, we'll say, I love that actually. Also, Amanda is amazing. And I'm so excited to continue to work with her. She's just awesome. Um, But I would say that if you look at some other finish line sports, like cross country or triathlon, where basically you're cycling where there, you're right, there aren't any weight categories. So everybody is trying to shrink down as much as humanly possible. My question is, I guess, is that better? Mm-hmm. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I would I just, as a total aside. So I did um, swim and bike duathlons for a long while. And there actually is, there's like the Athena category, right? And then there's, mm. every, every, and there's I actually should know what the lightweight category is, right. what I was a part of, but, um, so kind of at the, you know, recreational level, um, at, for triathlons and swim bike duathlons, there are cu- kind of some splits there, but especially um, in the yeah. women's, especially in the women's divisions. I mean, yeah. I think there's, uh, I think the, the guys division is called like Clydesdale. Clydesdales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Clydesdales yeah. and the Athenas. I'm like, yeah. Wow. Okay. okay. So, so Liz, so Liz, normally what we do is we talk with rowers and coaches and coxswains, and we like to delve into their backstories, like how they got involved with rowing. But as far yeah. as we can understand, you yourself do not row. Is that right? It's true. I actually was a sailor in college and played softball for that. But yeah, um, I am not a rower. That is okay. We'll talk to you anyway. Uh, So (laughs) how did you make your way into working with U.S. rowing? Okay, so I went to grad school at San Diego State. The Olympic Training Center is out there. And I started as an unpaid intern like around the London Olympics. I did a dual master's in exercise physiology and nutrition science. So that landed me there for three years. And I studied carbohydrate metabolism, um, doing presentations and things, mostly in endurance athletes, like cyclists and rowers on research that had already been done. And then I conducted my own independent research in carbohydrate metabolism too. So I kind of had this endurance knowledge base um, to begin with. Um, I was working with the team sports and finished my grad program. I had to go and do clinicals. So I was in Texas for six months, came back, took my RD exam, and then right off the bat started working with the endurance sports at the USOPC. It's called Team 3. So I had about seven different sports. Rowing was by far the biggest one. Um, And I met Curtis Jordan, actually. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that name. Um, He was the high performance director of U.S. rowing at the time. Um, He coached for a very long time at Princeton and at the national team and Olympic level. Um, So he's the one who kind of brought me in. And I owe a lot to him for being willing to bring in a different type of support less than a year and a half before an Olympic Games. Um, and just kind of softly reminding me as I started to work with this team and become, you know, attached and engaged with the athletes to kind of slow my role and take things one step at a time. Um, so, and I really think that that kind of steady integration is part of the reason why I was accepted by the coaching staff and the athletes so quickly. Um, so I spent the next 15 months or so working with the athletes on basic things. Are you hydrated? Are you waking up hydrated? 
looking at their sweat rates, um, helping them, you know, formulate fueling plans, um, meeting with them one-on-one, and then went to the Rio Olympic Games in 2016. And I operated one of the high-performance training centers there, which mostly had, it was meant to be for the, the rowers mainly. It was right across from the Flamingo, or right across from the Lagoa. It was called the Flamingo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so they ended up spending most of their days there Um, I was like doing catered um, breakfast, lunches and takeaway food and recovery snacks. And um, it was it was a a crazy experience. And I left the USOPC after the Rio Olympics to join U.S. rowing as a full time staff member. So that's really when um, things started to kind of um, uh, take hold. Um, And in the preparation for Tokyo, you know, we'd prepared for a lot of things. We spent many years uh, doing a lot of work and it kind of all crashed um, in, in a matter of months. Uh, I was uh, actually, the organization kind of shrunk when that first happened. So I was furloughed for about nine months and came back in January of 2021 and basically just picked up right where we left off. And in some cases, we kind of moved backwards a little bit because we'd made progress with um, some preparations for Tokyo that uh, then we kind of had to start all over again with a with a different team and a and a different um, different setup of training. So um, we did our best, and uh, you know that's that's kind of where we are now. Is we're back from Tokyo, and we're um, we're thinking about the things that went well and the things that we need to do better, and um, trying to really look at the big picture and n- not just what the national and Olympic team needs, which is obviously my main focusing goal is, is that core group of athletes, but what the entire organization needs and what the structure needs from the bottom up. Like, I just love that rowers are so engaged. They're so focused. They're very dedicated. They tend to be pretty darn smart too. Like rowers want more intricate defined information um, you know, they, they want to know why, how, where to find it. And that, um, that really speaks to me. So I kind of just, I got hooked on rowers and, and I haven't left and I don't plan on leaving anytime soon. So, <laughs> yeah, I wonder if that goes back to what you were saying, that there's this sort of one-way communication from a coach to a team and the fact that rowers have had to find out and had to be curious and inquire on their own about these kinds of things. So it's good that there's now this uh, sort of expert on board who coaches can go to and you can teach coaches how to disseminate information better or uh, resources that are available to them. And I think when I was with a master's crew in Seattle for many years, talk about nutrition, talks about nutrition, people would come in and do talks. That was revolutionary. That was mm-hmm. really revolutionary because I think people just assumed everybody was doing the best they could. They're hardworking, full-time working parents, CEOs, you know, business people, whatever they are. And you did see, you know, the dash banana in the parking lot, pretty, pretty much everywhere. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so some questions that we got from our listeners are about things like that, like kind of, uh, interesting tactics. And I know that Mm -hmm. uh, Rachel and I also wanted to ask you, uh, have you had the opportunity to row? When you join the Steady State Patreon community as a subscriber, you're supporting a new narrative in rowing, and a couple of your fellow rower entrepreneurs make it happen. 
Patrons get bonus content, swag, and early access. So join today at SteadyStateNetwork.com. In two, we're back with Liz Fusco. That's one, two. Hmm. Uh, Rachel and I also wanted to ask you, uh, have you had the opportunity to row? Oh my gosh. I'm so embarrassed to say that I still have not rowed a boat. Oh boy. I <laughs> Am I about to be on blast by the whole rowing community? Who's going to take me rowing? That's, right. that's I actually think, a better question. Yes. That's Who's going to take Liz rowing? Because you're yeah. up there in Vermont, right? And yes. uh, somebody could go. Scoop, I mean, scoop you yeah. Raspberry's not far. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be at head of the Charles. Maybe, maybe I could get in a boat ahead of the Charles. Yeah. That'd be if anyone's tough. going, yeah. come visit yeah. me in the tent. Well, we can, we can talk to Judy here <laughs> up at Craftsbury from Concept Two and say, this girl needs to get into a single and see what it's all about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different thing. It's we will team. not, we will not pressure you. We're but not yes. shaving you. We're not <laughs> going to shame shame. you at all. If you this get a chance, I, yes, I definitely want to. I definitely want to. I will <laughs> say too. Um, no, I think it's really amazing that like what I'm doing with U.S. Rowing. Just to back up a little bit to what we were talking about before, what I'm doing with U.S. Rowing right now is like it's exactly what I want to do. I'm creating like an organizational structure, and I think um, when you mentioned that like rowers are are t- kind of seeking out this information for themselves, like if you look to other um, other countries, um, there are some really cool examples of what this type of a system can do. So, um, one of the comments on your, um, on the Instagram post that you had yesterday, someone mentioned the girl on the river podcast, Mm -hmm. um, and Wendy Martinson, who's the GB sports dietitian. And so she has been doing, she's been doing that work since 2005, Um, I started doing this work in 2016 Mm -hmm. and she had, they also GB has quite a robust budget. So she mentions, um, how amazing the chefs are at their high performance training centers. Um, and you know, all these resources that they have. And like, obviously for us, we have our funding structure is completely different. GB is lottery funded. We're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Um, so we need to, we need to bring a lot of funding in in order to accomplish something like that. But that's kind of, that's what I'm here. I'm here to try to build and create what she's doing there essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's cool to hear, um, to hear the success stories of it in other places. So I'm wondering, are you working with GB and working with Canada and working with Australia and, Mm. and gleaning information and creating, are they part of your cohort? Because when I, I also work in the para rowing sphere, and I really believe that we shouldn't need to reinvent the wheel, uh, ever reaching out to them as colleagues or peers or. Yeah, I actually, I work with some athletes um, in other sports that represent some other countries or at least train in other countries. So I've actually gotten to meet quite a few sports dietitians from other countries. Um, Shout out to Canada, to New Zealand, to Australia, to South Africa. And yeah, we definitely, we try to communicate with one another. Um, If it's not on a regular basis, you know, there are, um, there's a couple of excellent sports dietitians, Susan Bogman and Christine Ziedzik. They published a, a comprehensive review on um, nutrition for open weight elite rowing. And I basically that's, that's like my, my Bible, like that's the paper that I use to, to, to guide my practice. So um, we all learn from one another. 
And that's kind of, that's what the sports science community is all about is iron sharpening iron. Like why would we try to create the same thing sure. a, a different way? Um, it's more really, it's, it's less about that for us. It's more about the fact that other countries have simply been doing things mm -hmm. that we are either just starting to do or have not yet done. They've been doing them for a much longer time than we are. Sure. We but, have yeah. maybe decades you know, and, and part of that is funding and part of that is culture and all of that needs to change. Well, I'm excited about your enthusiasm for this. And I, <laughs> I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you build and bring to U.S. Rowing and bring to then us as um, the members of U.S. Rowing. So I know one thing that you've been doing for a little while now is a Wellness Wednesdays. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's just, um, I, it's, I find that it's really fun just interacting with the rowing community whenever I can. And social media is obviously the most straightforward way to do that these days since we can't be in person. Um, so I started Wellness Wednesdays a year, year and a half ago. Um, it's not on a, like a complete regular schedule because of our training and competition, things like that. Um, but I basically just pick a topic and I'll talk about it, make some short videos. And then I, I always, I almost always do a Q and A. Um, like I'm planning on doing a wellness Wednesday that will air next Wednesday, actually. That's about regatta fueling where I'll be kind of gathering um, questions from, from viewers. And then I'll do a live wellness Wednesday. Well, I guess it'll just be like nutrition weekend or something. I want to do it during head of the Charles. Okay. So mm -hmm. I'm just thinking that a total tangent, I'm just thinking about so many regattas I've been to where there are food trucks available or snack tents. And I'm like mm -hmm. blown away by what is available and not in a good way. It's like barbecue at 10 o'clock in the morning or hamburgers <laughs> and hot dogs. And I'm just, I'm always a little surprised, like mm -hmm. at an athletic event that these are the sorts of nutrition choices <laughs> that we have, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Well, and if I could, like my two cents on that would be have what you normally eat before you race. Yeah. And if you're yeah. racing in the afternoon, make sure that you're eating every two to four hours leading up to that. So there's some timing considerations there as to whether it's a meal or a snack. Maybe you simplify it a bit so it's more liquid-based an hour or two before you race, or maybe you top up with a little carbohydrate snack 60 minutes, 15 to 60 minutes before you launch the boat. Um, sure. But keep it simple, simple, simple until the race is over and then go eat that barbecue. If the heart wants it, the heart gets it. <laughs> I, I like remember it. when I would help my teams get ready to go to regattas, I was always the one that was providing the regatta packing list and the regatta like do's and don'ts. And one of the biggest ones was the week before the regatta and during the regatta is not the time to try new cuisine. It is not the time to try a performance gel that you've never had before. It is not the time to put noon in your water bottle. If you don't do noon, it is not the time to try sushi the night before <laughs> when everybody's gone out for sushi, like just keep it super simple. Mm -hmm. And then also taking into consideration race jitters, you know, like you might not be processing food, travel can affect your body. Time changes can affect your body. Mm -hmm. So being really gentle and really simple, because otherwise you're just like SOL yeah. big time. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. just like doubled over. <laughs> it's, it's really like, it is that easy. Like keep it simple 
keep it familiar. I would say you don't even really have to modify your food intake until like maybe a day or two before. If you have a really sensitive stomach around racing, then you might reduce your fiber intake a little bit and maybe your fat intake a little bit, um, but not so much that you're left feeling hungrier at the end of your meals or, you know, so the, the biggest thing really is giving yourself enough time to digest before that race. So the meal should be two to four hours before, if it's two hours before it should be very low in fiber and very low in fat. If it's four hours before, and that's normal for you, then it could be a normal meal. It could be your normal breakfast. So, yeah. So I'm going to test it in training. Tested in training, absolutely, please. absolutely. Yeah. So I actually want to dive into like one of these questions that kind of we all have. I'm going to take that back. I'm not so sure it's a question; more that it's a practice that so many people do. Carbo loading. Oh yeah, I can't. So many people talk about pre regatta carbo loading, and I'm like, dude, you're rowing one sprint race tomorrow. Like, I'm not sure you need to have a pound of pasta the night before. <laughs> Would you mind talking to us a little bit about that philosophy? I would love to talk to you about carbohydrate loading, also known as glycogen supercompensation. Um, Is it it necessary before a 2K, even a head race? No, it's not. Um, The time in which uh, consuming, and actually, let me back up a little bit. If you want to check out a resource for this, we have athlete plates. It's teamusa.org slash nutrition. We've got an easy training athlete plate. That's for a day that's maybe an hour of training or less. Basically half the plate is veggies, a quarter of it is protein, a quarter of it's carbohydrate because you're not working so hard. Maybe it's a day off even. Then you've got your moderate training plate, which is basically one training session that's 90 minutes or longer or maybe it's a morning session plus an afternoon strength, something like that, where you've got a a kind of focused endurance session and then another session that's skills or strength-based. And then on that plate, you've got about a quarter of it with protein and then equally split between vegetables and carbohydrates. So it's more like close to a third of the plate with carbohydrate. The hard plate would be our carbo load glycogen supercompensation plate. And that's if you're doing, and this is the key thing here, if you're training more than three hours in a single day mm-hmm. for consecutive days, mm-hmm. that should be the size of your plate at all of your meals. That's not a carbohydrate loading plate. That's your plate, yeah. right? <laughs> so, and there are a lot of rowers that are doing more than three hours of training in a day. And on that plate, it's, you guessed it, one quarter carbohydrate. You guessed it, one quarter protein, 50% carbohydrate and 25% veggies. You need the energy. Carbohydrate is the main fuel source for endurance exercise, for high intensity exercise. The longer and the harder you work, the greater your need is for carbohydrate. So it's it's not thinking about it in terms of like, oh, I have a head race tomorrow. I have to have a bowl of pasta tonight. It's, wow, I have a big week of training ahead. I need to get on top of my energy levels by eating the appropriate size plate at all of my meals. Eating in accordance to how hard you're working on on a given day. Yeah. And I think there's more of a culture in master's rowing now, uh, where people are on training plans, they're working, uh, with a coach and their coach has got a team on a plan. I mean, it helps us as Mm -hmm. coaches have a better structure rather than just like, who's going to show up today. Oh, well, we have a regatta in three weeks, you know, 
And, and there's a lot more interest in taking uh, the training schedules uh, more seriously and more structured. So it helps everybody stay organized and it helps everybody fuel uh, appropriately. The way to think about nutrition is that, it, you know, you shouldn't have a set plan that tells you exactly what to eat and when the way that you have a training plan, but nutrition should support that training plan in an intuitive way. Meaning you have a training session at 7 a.m. Are you going to wake up and eat breakfast or not? You should. If you don't start by drinking some juice or a, a few bites of fruit, work your way up to a full meal and, and think about how you can systematize your day so that you're eating every three to four hours that you're awake and that's comfortable, yeah. you know? So there's a lot of nuances. There's, there's a lot of room for individuality, for work schedules, for all of these things. Um, but it, the basic thing is, is the same eat every yeah. three to four hours. Yeah. So I think I know where, where you might go with this next question that I have for you, but I have known a handful of rowers who just swear by intermittent fasting and, you know, they, they, their fasts include no breakfast. They go to practice on an empty, empty stomach, and then they may not even eat for a couple of more hours until later in the morning. Uh, and I personally can't really fathom doing this. My, I wake up, my stomach is rumbling. I want something to eat. I want something to fuel my body when I row or work out whatever I'm doing in the morning. And then after my workout, man, that stomach is rumbling. Like I want to have my banana with peanut butter. So could you tell us a little bit about like this notion of intermittent fasting and what you think about it? I do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, I would want to start with, I'd want to start with asking, um, when you say that people quote swear by it, what are the benefits that they are um, stating that they're getting from intermittent fasting? Like what my, is, what's making it good? So for myself, I can say that I plan my food better. Um, I know that I just like eating on that schedule. I know that I really uh, make better decisions. I don't like binge as soon as the fast is over. You know, I know that for myself, I've always eaten that way. I think it just naturally fits me. I don't do it for any other reason. I just kind of, mm. um, you know, I don't really like to eat in the morning and eat breakfast, you know, and that's most of the people that I've talked to who are not fanatical about it are just like, yeah, it just kind of works, you know, with, with the mm. way that I do things. The hard thing is when you go to practice at five in the morning or five 30 in the morning, and then you're like, well, what am I really working off of? Like, what's my fuel? Mm -hmm. So anyway, mm -hmm. go on. Yeah. So I guess what I was getting at is that oftentimes if there's a benefit to something like intermittent fasting, usually the thing that people say is weight loss. Mm -hmm. That's what and I do the most. The challenge with intermittent fasting, is there are a lot of reasons why I don't agree with it. Um, I would start, my first reason would be that it, encourages people to ignore intuitive feelings of hunger and fullness. Uh, maybe not fullness, but definitely hunger. Um, the reason why uh, it's important as athletes and active people to consume energy every three to four hours is, you know, I think you actually mentioned earlier in the podcast about having your RMR tested, your resting metabolic rate. So in a typical person, RMR will be anywhere from 1,400 to 1,800 calories, maybe for a rower, 2,000, 2,100 calories. Your resting metabolic rate is how many calories you require if you lay in bed all day. 
and it runs on a timer essentially. So the hours that you're awake, you're burning X number of calories. So when I do this math with athletes, I typically break it into quadrants of the day. So between six to 10 AM, you're burning four or 500 calories between 10 to two, you're burning four or 500 calories, two to six, you're burning four or 500, six to 10, four or 500. So those are your quadrants of your day. You're going to burn that no matter what. So if you put your exercise at six in the morning and you've had no calories of intake, you've expended for you've, you've burned four or 500 calories just because of your resting requirements. And then you're out on the water for an hour or two and you burn another four or 800 or a thousand calories. There are a lot of things that start to happen there. Muscle protein breakdown is the first catabolism of muscle protein. Um, we use ketones as a fuel source, but that's not very uh, efficient. It requires a lot more oxygen, takes more energy to create less ATP. So it's not an energy, it's not the energy system that we are training either at that time, unless it's a very low intensity thing. Um, so you're rather than being in a state of kind of like feeding and fueling the exercise, you're in a state of actually kind of breaking down what you've got in storage to make what you can to support the exercise. Um, the biggest concern I would say in masters athletes that are doing this would be calcium metabolism. Um, the, the calcium is required to contract muscle. So if you're doing a non-weight bearing sport, such as rowing, and you are, um, doing continuous work and contracting that muscle, then you're going to start to have uh, excretion of calcium from bone in order to support continued heart rate and metabolism. So um, you can often see bone loss in athletes that are um, undergoing exercise and coming out in such a, in such a calorie deficit. So you can see how even in a master's rower, let's go on the low end, 400 calories of RMR by 10 a.m. They burn 500 calories in their session. Maybe it's a low intensity one. And then they go a few more hours after that without eating. So they're already at over 1000 calorie deficit mm -hmm. before 10 o'clock in the morning, like your cognitive function is going to suffer there. Mm -hmm. There's like it, it, and, and I think that the other, the other, um, the other thing with intermittent fasting is that, um, you know, our minds and bodies are incredibly resilient organisms and structures. Like our bodies and minds will do whatever we ask of them until they absolutely can't anymore. And if we tell ourselves that this feels incredible and that we've never felt better in our lives, you better believe that we will, even if our exercise capacity is less than it was before we started this thing. Mm -hmm. And especially if the calorie restriction, because it does, doesn't always, but especially if it leads to weight loss, and then you have our culture seeing people losing weight, thinking, you look great. How'd you do it? You must be healthier. So it just mm -hmm. feeds this whole system of kind of restriction in my mind that I just don't think, I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's an optimum way to, to live. I will say that sometimes we naturally do fast when we have a feast with our friends and family and we overeat out of joy and we choose to overeat and we wake mm -hmm. up and we're still full and we're not hungry until the afternoon. That's intermittent fasting. We didn't have to force ourselves to do it but it happens. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's something to strive for. I don't think it's like the optimal um, equation for health throughout the lifespan. Um, I think that in some populations, it might be helpful, but I don't think it always helps establish a healthy relationship with food either. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, sure. It's not something that I generally recommend to, to my people. Yeah. I mean, point, point taken. It's, it's definitely <laughs> not something that um, I take lightly, you know, I mean, I'm yeah. very active and definitely um, I, I'm always very sensitive to the, the reward mentality around food, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very prevalent in, in adults, especially who have some past food stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. past food issues. Speaking to that, I wonder just for the general population that's listening, when people are approaching diet and nutrition, and, and of course the diet is a four letter word in, in a lot of people's mind, you know, because yeah. they've, they've been raised with some sort of, um, you know, food inconsistencies. Um, is there such a thing as a dietary counselor, like someone who actually mm. takes someone's psychology and their food and helps to sort of bridge that gap? Mm. Cause I know a lot of people who to play with a lot of these mm. concepts, they play with paleo, they do the whole yeah. 30, they do the whole 30, they do a dry January, they go keto, yeah. they go and they go, you know, restrict this, of, restrict that, restrict this, restrict that. If I keep taking well, these away, I'll get healthier. Well, I think it's also a sense of control. And I think when people feel out of control, um, they look for these formulas in order to have a sense of control. Is there Mm -hmm. such a thing as dietary counseling that is out in the world? Yes, we are registered dietitians. We are out there to dietary counsel you. Um, And also oftentimes the reason why people feel so out of control around food is because they avoid and restrict and feel guilty and afraid of it. So the more that you can accept a food, the more that you can actually comfortably have a food around and not be insane around it, the less anxious (laughs) you will be and the easier your food choices will be throughout your life. Um, but Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, I think of, um, I think of eating disorder dietitians and I know like that term eating disorder is so scary, but everyone is in a different, you know, on a different scale of a spectrum of one to 10 with their relationship with food in their body on any given day, it fluctuates. It, it's never the same. And it, once we kind of accept that, I think we could start to, you know, take a look at some of our own habits and, and acknowledge which ones maybe we're not doing for the best reasons. Yeah, um, I've, I, I've also heard the term um, disordered eating, not just mm-hmm. eating disorder, but there's mm-hmm. also disordered eating, which is kind of like and eating disorder light, you know? Right. And then there's like disordered eating behaviors, like being hungry and not eating that mm-hmm. w- don't qualify as an eating disorder, but it is, uh, it's a behavior that's not optimal. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I said, it's a huge, huge spectrum and all dietitians are trained in counseling. You know, like there are many different kinds of us. Uh, there are sports dietitians. There are uh, dietitians that, you know, like my stepfather is seeing one who um, she likes to go on hikes. And so she does all of her con- consults like out in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like there really is uh, there's someone for everyone. And mm-hmm. like that's kind of like my thing, too, is that like I want there to be more dietitians that think that rowing is awesome and have a really good knowledge base in rowing. Um, so like, that's kind of part of this whole thing too. Like, I think that the ketos and the paleos and the, all those types of diets, um, like ultimately they are not sustainable in the long term, especially for athletes. And like, I would always ask yourself the question, like if the purpose of this diet is to eliminate things 
is it practical and is it going to make me happy? Is it something that I can actually do for the rest of my life? Um, so yeah. I think this is actually a really good uh, like point to bring in that besides the work that you're doing with U.S. Rowing and and other like national governing bodies is you also have your your own small practice, isn't that right, Liz Food Co. I do. And I actually like, I don't advertise on social media really at all. Um, and I don't advertise it much. Sometimes I do on a podcast or something, or I, um, sometimes I'll do talks for, um, there's an organization called the next college student athlete, um, you know, little things like that here and there. Um, but I do have, um, you know, a cyclical schedule over the course of the year. And this time of year tends to be when I have like a few more private clients than other times, uh, like mm-hmm. in the middle of the summer when I'm re- when we're traveling and competing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So, cool. uh, Tara, we have some questions from listeners. Do you want to segue into that? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. We had put out a little call to our listeners on social media. We wanted to know what sorts of questions people have for nutritionists, because I would guess a huge percentage of us do not seek out the personal attention of a nutritionist. But when given the chance to ask one, they have some questions. So which one do you want to start with, Tara? Let's see. I like this one from Coach Dave Harvey at Tacoma uh, Youth Rowing, which is a new program. He's trying to get it off the ground and he works with organizations like the Y or boys and girls clubs, or he's really, really doing well with getting black business owners out on the water just to try rowing. He doesn't have a boathouse. He's literally, you know, a chain link fence and some boats, you know, he's, he's out there, but he asks tips for athletes on a budget or who live in a food desert. So people who are in a really super urban environment who are not have easy access or affordable access to uh, nutritious, you know, whole foods, if that's your thing. Mm. Um, what are some just good daily tips for people who are really looking to get more bang for their buck? Mm. I would start with, I think I would start with the most extreme food desert version, which would be in a town where there isn't a grocery store and there isn't one within 30 or 40 miles. Cause there are many places in America that are like that. Um, and the gas station is like the spot where you can go for something when you need it. And, and for those, for those levels of food desert, I would say, um, the most affordable thing that is going to give you a good mixture of nutrients is going to probably be dairy or soy products like string cheeses, um, plain low fat milks or a chocolate milk. Um, you could also, uh, you know, any types of like jerkies or, um, mixed nuts. Um, it sometimes they'll have whole pieces of fruit in there, like bananas and things like that. Um, then we go up to kind of the next level, which is you have access to a grocery store. Um, and for that, I would, when I'm working with athletes trying to kind of develop a grocery list, I call it the, the PVS method. So you've got a protein column, a veggie column, and a starch column. <laughs> um, so a protein that would be pretty affordable would probably be your whole chicken. I think that's probably the most affordable thing. Um, You could go for chicken breasts or thighs. Honestly, thighs are pretty affordable too. Mm -hmm. Um, But whole chickens are great to honest. Like I actually just did this yesterday, just poach it in water and you can use like a little bit of carrots and celery and onion in the water, but you poach the chicken for like 40, 45 minutes, pull it out, let it 
rest and then shred it. Um, and you can shred it onto a sheet pan and freeze the shredded chicken mm -hmm. and then break it up so that you essentially have like 10 servings or more of shredded chicken in the freezer and you can grab it serving by serving. Um, a whole rotisserie chicken in a grocery store would also be a good option. Um, you can also cut the backbone out of the chicken and flatten it down onto a sheet pan, make it spatchcocked. That's what it's mm -hmm. called. It's a funny word that I kind of love. Um, and like, so, so larger format meats essentially and, and using all of it, which might mean freezing some of it. Um, and if you freeze it kind of flat, then once it's frozen, it's easy to also thaw. So you can have a quick meal, you add protein quickly to a meal um, from your freezer. And so that kind of is my protein idea. Also, again, like dairy products, like milks, eggs, um, cheeses, those things tend to be quite affordable, high in calcium and electrolytes and protein. Um, so a, a pretty cheap, good ad there. Um, with veggies, I would say frozen veggies, are, they're picked at actually their peak of ripeness and they're usually blast chilled. So they have pretty high nutrient density, especially compared to like a sad head of lettuce, you know, somewhere in the middle of the country grocery store that's kind of wilty, you know, so, mm -hmm. or like a, or a barely red tomato, for example, mm -hmm. like canned tomatoes, canned products can also have a lot of nutrient density. So frozen things, canned things, also pickled stuff. And it's pretty easy to pickle stuff yourself. Um, I live on a farm here. So we have carrots all the time and beets. And when we have too many, we just pickle them and we eat them all winter. Uh, and it's just nice to have a veggie, um, even if it's not fresh, fresh. Mm -hmm. um, so creative veggie, cr protein in the large format, and then the starches. Um, I would say the cheapest ones being like probably potato, pasta, rice. Um, great to have the skin on the potato. Great to have a brown rice option. Also great to cook in batches, larger batches, so that you've got multiple meals lined up, left over in your fridge. And you can also make more than one. Like if you make rice for a dish one night, you can make a fried rice the next day or a soup, or you can crisp it up and put it on top of a salad. So there's different things that you can do with the same ingredients. Um, yeah. And then also in season produce too, mm -hmm. things that are like, even in food desert areas, there will like certain types of produce will probably be cheaper around certain times of year. You can usually just Google that and find out what's in season in your area. Those are the things that are going to be both more affordable and probably more nutrient dense too. Yeah. Thank you for that because it really makes it super simple and makes you realize, okay, I don't need to have 12 different things I'm thinking about, my meal can be pretty simple and give me everything that I need. And that is certainly something that no matter kind of what your budget is or where you live, I think it probably takes a lot of people to get to a place where they recognize that preparing meals for themselves does not need to be super complicated. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's a great answer, even for just like some younger folks who are afraid of starting to cook, like they don't know what to do for themselves. So they order a pizza or they have mac and cheese, you know? Um, yeah. so, so yeah. starting, starting simple. So we have a couple more questions, <laughs> right. um, from girl on the river actually had a question. Amazing. You want to ask that? Yeah. So girl on the river, uh, Patricia Carswell, uh, we've known her for a little while and we just, we just love her to bits. And she wants to know what your signature dish is for dinner. What do you, what's your go-to? 
Oh my gosh. I have so many. It's so crazy. Like I just go into the kitchen and it's like a chopped episode. Every time I walk in, I just, I love cooking and I love coming up with new random things. Um, but I would say my signature is probably a garden bowl, which is, uh, usually a grain base. Mm -hmm. I've been really into combining, um, lentils and rice. Um, so I'll use that that. as the base. Yeah. 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 I've been doing that a lot lately. I like the texture of it. Mm -hmm. And then I usually have a couple of roasted things and a couple of pickled things. So like last week it was roasted beets and carrots. Cause again, we have so many beets and carrots. And, um, and then I had some pickled garlic scapes from earlier in the year. Um, and I made a soy egg. So I like marinated, um, soft boiled eggs and soy. Mm-hmm. And then usually that's topped with either, um, some chicken or some crispy tofu, or if I'm feeling really fancy, then I braise pork belly. Mm-hmm. and put some wow. crispy pork belly on top of it. That does sound really good. Not just the ingredients, but I like the different the notion of all the different textures because you mm-hmm. can go in a really bad direction with something that's like rice and lentil base and all of a sudden it's just like a whole lot of soft in your mouth. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Uh, so I oh, like the that's actually the other thing that I had on that, which was a very important component, was um, I recreated a salad that they served at breakfast in Tokyo, mm-hmm. um, which was like a, basically a sesame a sesame dressing on a panzanella salad. Yeah, it was yeah. really yummy. So crunchy, fresh tomatoes and that savory sesame. Mm. Well, I yeah, know that- the I know the food prepper people appreciate things like bowls. Uh, the people who do their food prep at the beginning of the week, we do that with uh, quinoa and rice and roasted vegetables mm-hmm. and protein so that you can just mm-hmm. build a bowl and you come up with a great couple of sauces like a sesame tahini mm-hmm. or a sesame ginger or a, yeah. you know some cool different sauces and you can really mix and match um, with a big pile of spinach and some fresh um, vegetables on there. And it's just a really great way to eat. I love assembly food. That's what I call it. Yeah. And you can kind of like build that athlete plate. Like if you've got the, you got the athlete plate in your mind of like easier, moderate or hard training day, you can build the plate using those ingredients, whichever way you like. All right. Excellent. Thank Thank you so much, Liz. You're welcome. These are great. Well, we'll definitely post all these things on, on our show notes and, uh, and make sure that people have access to you, Liz, and make sure they have access to, uh, the U S rowing videos that you've been creating and, and how to find you. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, I loved just the, the nature of it, you know, the conversational nature of this. So I'm really happy we got to meet you in person. This is awesome. Tara, I just thought of one more thing that I'd really like to ask her about. What's up? Okay, so Tara and I, every Friday, we do something called Coffee Chat, which is a Mm -hmm. Facebook Live 30-minute chat. The irony is neither of us drinks coffee, but it's a a catchy (laughs) name. Um, But one thing that we also normally do with our um, podcast interviews at the end is we have um, a a rapid-fire Q&A, and none of those questions Mm. make any sense for you today, so we basically skip them. But the very last question we ask is, coffee before or after a row. And so I'm actually a little curious mm-hmm. what your opinion is about coffee before and or during a row. I have teammates who will mm-hmm. bring a, like a mug in the boat with them of mm-hmm. coffee. And I've oh. heard kind of a variety of um, pieces of feedback about coffee and yeah. hydration. 
this is another one I could talk about for so long. <laughs> okay, but... you get two minutes. <laughs> okay, two minutes. So um, the I think the one important point here is that not everyone metabolizes caffeine quickly. And the people that metabolize it slowly tends to not have a performance benefit from caffeine. So it, it does have an individual nature here of like, if you drink coffee and you're anxious and jittery and, and your heart rate goes up and you don't feel good, then you're probably a slow responder that is not going to have a good performance effect of caffeine. If you're the type of person that can drink coffee at five o'clock in the afternoon and still fall asleep, um, and you're kind of habituated, then you're likely a fast metabolizer of caffeine and thus may have a performance benefit from using it in competition. There is no reason to avoid caffeine in training in order to use it in competition for a performance benefit. We know the rules, no new things on race day. Why would we do that? You know what the side effects of too much caffeine are. Let's not mess with that, right? So using caffeine in training, um, in, that means kind of uh, understanding that there is variability. Like even if you go to the same Starbucks for black coffee every day, there's going to be variability in the caffeine content there. So if you want to be specific about it, it's around one to three milligrams of caffeine for every kilo that you weigh. There are some products that have set amounts of caffeine in them. Um, if you want to be careful like that, um, people who are habituated to caffeine can tolerate higher doses of around six milligrams per kilogram. But once you surpass and you get closer to nine, you're going to have more GI side effects, higher heart rate, anxiety, jitteriness, higher resting um, core temperature, perceived effort, all those things. We don't want too much caffeine. We, we can totally do no caffeine, but low caffeine is better than too much. Um, and yeah, figuring it out in training and taking it about one hour before you start training. So I think like maybe sipping that in the car on the way to the boathouse or drinking that at home before you drive, that's actually a pretty good timeline. Um, if you're sipping it in the boat, um, and it tastes good and it's warm and it's keeping you warm. Like, I guess there could be some helpfulness there. Um, it takes kind of a while for it to get into your bloodstream. Um, but it, you know, your mouth does recognize caffeine and give you a bit of a performance boost there. Mm -hmm. And that's why you'll sometimes see like caffeinated gels. Mm -hmm. Those things are typically used in long distance events where athletes are taking many gels over the course of many hours. And they take that one as a top-up dose kind of in the middle of the race to get a little bit of an extra boost of caffeine. So uh -huh. there's definitely a time and a place for it. It's not for everyone. Testing it in training and figuring out what low dose works for you is probably my bigger tips for that one. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Of course. Awesome. So much fun. Thanks yeah. for having me. To see photos of Liz and get links to the people, clubs, events, and research mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Did you know Steady State is more than a podcast? We've got virtual events happening every week that bring together the rowing community from across the country and around the world. Join our version of the post-practice hangout. We call it Coffee Chat, and we shoot the breeze about our rowing week, rowing in the news, and a whole lot more for about 30 minutes every Friday. Join us at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on Facebook Live. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. Are you looking for workout buddies? Join us for Steady State Sundays, the fourth Sunday of each month at 6.45 a.m. Pacific, 9.45 Eastern. Register for the 60-minute Steady State or workout and we'll provide cues and insights to keep you motivated along the way. Work at your own pace and then stick around after to talk.
To find out more about any of our events and claim your spot in our lineup, visit steadystatenetwork.com events. Into Let It Run. That's one, two, let it run.